Tuesday morning to you, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon Podcast. Since it is Tuesday, this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode several years ago. Thanks for downloading, and I sure hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on September 7th of 2014 under the headline, Merrill brought bikes to Portland and prostitutes took him away. Here we go. Many people today still think of bicycles as toys for children or for highly specialized hobbyists and exercise buffs like fencing foils. Others think of them as indispensable but unexciting tools for modern life. But for most of us, it's hard to imagine the bicycle as a cutting-edge modern wonder. But in the early 1870s, that's just what bicycles were. Fast, exciting, dangerous things that could make an ordinary human fly like the wind. And what the dashing auto racer or aeroplane flyer was to a small boy in 1910, champion trick rider Carrie Moore was to 11-year-old Fred T. Merrill in 1870. Little Fred's father had opened a riding rink in the town of Lynn, Massachusetts, where the Merrill family then lived, and stocked it with a few of the two-wheeled velocipedes that were then the state-of-the-art in bicycle tech. A velocipede, in 1870, was a brutally crude thing, just a step removed from the notorious all-wood bone shakers of the 1850s. It featured a smaller wheel in the back and a bigger one in front, driven directly by the pedals like the front wheel of a modern toddler's tricycle. But Carrie Moore could make one dance like a ballerina, and young Fred, possibly a little smitten with the dashing scorcher, found her fascinating. Quote, I took to watching her at every opportunity, and soon I was trying some of her fancy stunts, Merrill told Portland Morning Oregonian writer Stuart Holbrook many years later. Long before we left for the Pacific Coast, I was an expert rider doing all the tricks Carrie knew and inventing some of my own. The Merrill family moved across the country to San Francisco in 1873, and Fred continued his stunt riding. Carrie herself seems to have moved there a year or two earlier. In 1871, she was the headline act at the Occidental Skating Academy and later was named Female Roller Skating Champion of the World. Fred in San Francisco apprenticed as an engraver, but soon found he could make far more money as a trick rider. One memorable evening, he built a plank bridge a foot wide across the arena and pedaled his brand-new British-built high-wheel penny-farthing bicycle, the first one ever imported to America, across the bridge while his two baby brothers sat, one on each of his shoulders. Had he slipped, there would have been a triple funeral, but he didn't fall, and the crowd loved it. Soon, though, Fred started hearing about an Australian chap up north in Portland who was claiming to be the finest trick rider in the world. Well, this didn't set very well with Fred, who considered that title rightfully his, so off to Portland he went to settle the matter. In Portland, the Aussie accepted Fred's challenge, but then left town that very evening in the dark of night, never to be seen again. Meanwhile, Fred had discovered that he really liked Portland. Quote, I found the city a lively place, he said, even when compared with San Francisco. So he stayed. And in 1885, now convinced that bicycles were destined to become a real mainstream thing, he opened the Northwest's first bicycle dealership in a big tent built for him by legendary Portland neophile Henry Vemme. 
Henry was the original founder of White Stag and owner of Oregon's first automobile, a Stanley Steamer, in 1899. But that's another story. Fred, at the time, was selling the Columbia brand of bicycles of the type known as Ordinary or Penny Farthing, the kind with a huge front wheel and a tiny trailing wheel. They were speedy and they were fun, but a little hard to get used to and rather dangerous to boot, especially going downhill. Taking a header while perched atop a six-foot-high wheel was relatively common and sometimes fatal. So sales were slow, and Fred mostly was paying the bills with his trick riding. But when in the early 1890s the safety bicycle was invented, Fred knew his time had come. The safety was essentially a modern bicycle, two equal-size wheels of moderate size, the rearmost driven by a chain. It was easy to learn to use, fast, and fun. It was going to explode, and Fred knew it, and he was ready when it did. Fred quickly developed a reputation as the Tom Peterson of his time, an advertiser and promoter of legendary wizardliness. He talked to the telephone company, gave them some money, and got permission to paint the words Ride a Rambler, Rambler was his top-selling brand, in screaming red on all the telephone poles in town. And he staged events. Daredevil riding exhibitions, races against thoroughbred horses, even a trick dog, the Rambler dog, who jumped from the roof of his building into a net on command. And the craze continued. In the late 1890s, the governor, Theodore Gear, was a passionate bicyclist, and in 1900 he rode his bicycle from Salem to Shampooey to mark the location of the formation of Oregon's first territorial government in 1843. Bicycles also famously liberated the women of the Belle Epoque from the drawing room, giving them a means of getting around quickly that wasn't dependent on a brother or husband hitching up horses. Of course, many Oregon women of the time were perfectly capable of handling stock, but lots of others weren't, and a bicycle made it possible for them to go places and do things that had never been open to them previously. Quote, Pastors preached powerful sermons against any and all women who took to the deviltry of riding a wheel, Merrill recounted. And if you know anything about the women, you will know that all of them who could get a wheel had one. There were letters to the paper and editorials about the great menace to life, health, and morals of the bicycle. And scorchers, that's bike riders who rode with excessive speed and carelessness, scorchers were arrested and taken to jail just as reckless drivers are today. After a solid ten years of wild popularity, during which Fred sold more than 50,000 bicycles, the fad went out like a light. Quote, from 1900 on, the demand for wheels dropped month by month, Fred recounted. Well, sure you might think. That's about when the automobile was invented, right? So the car displaced the bicycle, yes? Wrong, says Fred. Remember, cars were expensive, temperamental, delicate things in the 19-aughts, suitable only for wealthy young men. The first Ford Model T was still years in the future. No, the bicycle fan was killed not by the automobile, but by a group of enterprising prostitutes in the North End. Legendary North End Madam Liverpool Liz Smith probably started it. In any case, she took it the farthest. She invested in a bicycle-riding track, kind of like a horse track, and equipped her girls with brightly colored outfits and skirts with slits high enough to deploy as much leg as any situation might seem to require. They staged races around the track for the <coughs> gentlemen to bet on, and when business was slow, they sallied forth around town on their wheels to troll for customers, ringing their bells and flashing those winning smiles. Quote, when Blanche Hamilton's girls and Liverpool Liz's girls and all the rest of them took to the wheel, the society girls got off their wheels and went afoot, or went back to the buggy, Fred recalled. By 1903, for the most part, the only women peddling around town were also, if you will, peddling around town. 
a fact that's interesting to reflect upon when looking at historic photographs of women on bicycles from that time. And it would be 30 years before bicycle riding would start coming back into favor. As a side note, it is my opinion that the severe scowl known as the bicycle face was cultivated by society bicyclists in an attempt to differentiate themselves from their less quote-unquote respectable sisters, who of course smiled coquettishly at all the prospective customers they encountered as they rode. It also seems a pretty good guess that a woman would feel like scowling after four or five random gentlemen have mistaken her for a prostitute. As for Fred, he went on to a wild and colorful career as a city politician, on the Keep Portland Wide Open ticket, an auto dealer, a roadhouse owner, and a sports promoter. He liked to say he'd made a million and a half dollars in Portland and spent every cent of it. There are wonderful stories relating to all these activities, but they will have to wait for a future article. Fred finally retired to a home on Stark Street across from Laurelhurst Park and died at the age of 84 in 1944. Key sources in this story have included works by Stuart Holbrook, J.D. Chandler, and weirdportland.blogspot.com. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. More info is at our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house about which more can be learned at pulp-lit.com. Speaking of which, if you enjoy listening to me, you might check out some of my audiobooks. You can find them most easily with a search for my name on audible.com. Most of them are old pulp stuff, H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Rice Burroughs, etc., but at least two of them are offbeat Oregon history type stuff. Check them out if you're so inclined. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.